Good morning. Today's scripture is found in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to do, to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This concludes today's reading of God's holy word. Well, this chance would have it. Speaking of Daniel, my friend and his love of cars, <clears throat> I have noticed something about cars. And that's this, that at risk of saying the obvious, reliability is a strong selling point 
when it comes to buying a new or used car. The reliability of the car. So, so it's not complicated, right? As consumers, we want to know that the car, the vehicle for which we're shelling out a small fortune, fortunately, that's how much cars cost these days, will continue to do what the manufacturer says it will do. We want to know that. No one wants to wind up with a lemon. And car companies know that, and that's why I feel like you can hardly watch a car commercial on TV today without hearing two magic words. Really, it's a magic phrase. J.D. Power and Associates. So evidently, I'm not cynical at all, if there's a little gold and black plaque next to the car, that means somehow it's dependable. Though until recently, I couldn't have told you how they reached such a conclusion. So this week I did a little bit of digging and this is what I found out. Quote, the J.D. Power U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study, VDS, focuses on problems experienced by original owners of three-year-old vehicles. Study findings are used extensively by manufacturers worldwide to help them design and build better vehicles, I would hope so, which typically retain higher resale value, and by consumers to help them make more informed choices for both new and used vehicles. Problem symptoms are evaluated in eight vehicle system categories. Exterior, features controls displays, seats, interior, the driving experience, audio communication, entertainment, navigation, that list just keeps getting longer, HVAC, and finally, engine transmission. How many of you have used JD Power in some way to buy a car at any point? Any of you ever access that? Not very many of you, okay. So apparently you're like me, you're kind of cynical when you see that on TV. But I learned that there's actually a method behind the madness and the goal of gathering and publishing all that data, in theory at least, is to identify for us as consumers which cars are worthy of our trust. If you think about it, J.D. Power and Associates don't make a car reliable. They can't do that. They simply reveal and confirm the cars that are reliable, right? In theory, at least, the goal is that J.D. Power and Associates, their study would verify if a car is worthy of our trust. I want you to think about something with me, church. That is precisely what the Word of God does for us. Precisely. It reveals, it confirms, it verifies that the God who created the world and everything in it is absolutely worthy of our trust. That's what the word does. God God never says, just trust me. You ever done that to one of your kids' parents? Well, why? Well, because. God never says to someone, just trust me. He always gives us what? Reasons to trust him. 
gives us reasons. That's why his word is such a precious gift. And, and Genesis 21, in that sense, is, is no exception because the first 21 verses of this chapter, they, they take us by the hand, as it were, and they lead us, they show us, here's why you can trust God. Here's the reason. Here's the proof. So on one level, this entire message in this chapter is, is really simple, okay? You could boil it down to this. God is supremely worthy of your trust because he always keeps his promises. God's supremely worthy of your trust, why? Because he always keeps his promises. He always fulfills his word. He always does what he says he will do. That's good news, church. But if you slow down and think about it and don't let just the the strength in what I just said kind of carry you along in an unthinking way, you might realize this. That is not inherently comforting. Why not? Well, because a wicked man could promise that he is going to hurt you and your family, and as the years go by, prove to you that he always keeps his promises. He could do that. And so the fact that God always does what he says he will do gives us a reason to believe him, certainly, to take his word seriously, but it doesn't necessarily compel us to cast the weight of our life on him. To, to do what Asaph does in Psalm 73, 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all his works. So what does Genesis 21 do? Well, it goes further, okay? It teaches us that we can trust the God who always keeps his promises because the God who always keeps his promises is three things. He's sovereign, he's loving, and he's wise. As Jerry Bridges so, so wonderfully said in his book, Trusting God, okay? That's not original to me, but that's what's going on here, okay? And Bridges says that's what this means, okay? It means that God knows what is best. He's wise, right? Second, that God wants what he's best. He's loving. And third, that he's sovereign or he's powerful. He has all the power he needs to bring that to pass in your life. He's sovereign, he's loving, he's wise. And that is what convinces us to throw the weight of our life on the Lord. It's not just the fact that he's a God who keeps his promises. An evil man could do that. It's the fact that the God who always keeps his promises is a God who is sovereign and loving and wise. That's what we're being taught here. And the point of this passage, friends, is that you and I would cast the weight of our life on him. Okay, we would abandon all self-reliance, would abandon all cynical resignation and joyfully walk in absolute dependence on the Lord. That's the goal at all times, every situation. So God's faithfulness to keep his word is the overall theme here. Okay, there's a lot going on. Maybe as Suzanne was reading this, you're thinking, I'm just sort of being jerked around. What is going on here? There's a theme. It's God's faithfulness to keep his word. 
that theme plays out. God, God shows us that he keeps his word in a way that reveals some of the most important aspects of his character. Namely, he's sovereign, he's loving, he's wise. So, point one, we're gonna look at the first seven verses here. The Lord keeps his word in a way that displays his sovereign power. He keeps his word, but he does that. Remember, that's not inherently comforting, but he keeps his word in a way that displays his sovereign power, okay? So what's going on here? For nearly four chapters, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for something, waiting for God to do for Abraham and Sarah what he said he would do back in Genesis 17, 19. What was that? Hello, Abraham. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. Thank you, Lord. I trust you completely. No. He laughed. She laughed. I'm 100. She's 90. This is a biological impossibility. But the Lord doubles down. Genesis 18.10. Hello, Abraham. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. They've longed for that for years, but they've long given up hope of having children. In fact, 14 years before this, roughly, Sarah told Abraham, go have a child with Hagar, my female servant. So he did. And he named the boy Ishmael because Sarah was barren. But, but God didn't promise to give Abraham a son by Ishmael, right? He promised to give Abraham a son through Sarah, not through Hagar, through Sarah. And so at the beginning of Genesis 21, look at verse one, very beginning of this chapter, nearly 25 years after the Lord first showed up and talked to Abraham, okay? And said, I'm gonna make you a great nation. A miracle happens and Sarah gives birth to a son. She gives birth to a son. And I think if you're reading this birth announcement, because that's what the first two, three verses essentially are, given how long we've been waiting for this, it can almost feel understated. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute, you mean they have a son? Like, where's the confetti? Where's the fireworks? This is amazing. It can feel understated, but, but friends, please hear this. The first couple verses of this chapter tell us all we need to know. What's that? When God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. When he makes it, he keeps it, okay? Look, what does the Lord say? The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, right? And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Do you know how kind God is to just keep repeating and repeating and repeating himself until our dull minds get the point? It's so kind of him. Well, the repetition is the point. God's faithful to do what he says he will do. That's the point. So hear that, friend. When God makes a promise to you, he's not feeding you, as John Calvin once said, with an empty promise. He feeds his children with true promises, with good promises. He visited Sarah. 
He did a supernatural work in her body as he had said. So what's that mean? That means that the loudest message at the beginning of this chapter is not, hooray, here's Isaac, but rather this, God, you are faithful. That's the loud message. The point of these verses is not, Isaac is here. The point of these verses is, Lord, you are faithful. You've been faithful. He he does what he says he will do. Think about that, friend. He doesn't, the Lord doesn't run out of money like we do. He doesn't run out of time. He doesn't forget to write down an appointment or get distracted by a a bigger project for another client, okay? He does what he says he will do, period, always. And that's, that's comforting because that means there has not, there is not, and there will never be an instance in which the Lord promises to do something and fails to do as he's promised. You won't find that. God's, God is faithful to keep his word to us and he's faithful to do his work in us. Think about that. He didn't send Isaac via Amazon Prime or some other delivery service. It wasn't like, Abraham, Sarah, surprise, your son is here. No, what did he do? He worked a miracle in Sarah's body, a miracle in her body, but it was in her body, right? He he visited her. He, He drew near to her. He did something supernatural in her. And the entire account in these first couple verses takes great pains to help us understand that the arrival of Isaac was a very human event. It's a human event. Okay, notice the repetition. Verse two, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Verse three, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Verse five, Abraham was 100 years old when, wait, let me guess, his son Isaac was born to him. I told a brother this week that it's like, okay, I get it. Born, 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 born. I get it. (laughs) Pay attention to the repetition. Pay attention. Because it's God's way of reminding us Isaac wasn't an alien baby. (laughs) Okay? He was the human product of human reproduction. It's what he was. And why is it that important? Well, friend, it's important because that gives us hope. It gives us hope. Because the point of Isaac's birth, please hear this, friend, is not just that God keeps his promises, though he does, okay? The point of Isaac's birth is that God keeps his promises by demonstrating his sovereign power through human weakness and inability. That's the point. It's not just God keeps his promises, hooray, where are the fireworks? It is, but it's more than that. God keeps his promises by demonstrating his sovereign power through human weakness inability and he does that for a very simple reason if you've never thought about this before it's it's for the simple reason that when God shows sovereign power in the teeth of human weakness and inability guess who gets all the glory God does God does so it's not an accident 
that there are two times that coincide in this passage, okay, especially in verse two, if you're looking at that. The time of which God had spoken to him, promised to bring Isaac, and a second time, the time of Abraham's old age. It is not a coincidence that the time when God promised he would act in his life was the very time when Abraham was most weak, inept, and incapable. That's not a coincidence. That's how God rolls. He keeps his word in a way that displays his sovereign power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And and friend, if you want a picture of what that kind of boasting looks like, well, look at verses six and seven. Check this out, okay? And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? I mean, remember this. She is 90 years old. You ever seen a 90-year-old woman nursing a baby of her own? I don't think so. Who would have dreamed of that? Who would have said that would happen? Yet, Sarah says, I have borne him a son in his old age. What what kind of laughter is that? Friend, it's the laughter of joy. It's the laughter of amazement. Okay, it's, it's the laughter of gratitude when something crazy happens to you that you never thought was possible and you don't know whether to laugh or cry. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I cannot believe that just happened. One minute I'm crying, the next minute I'm laughing. That's, oh my, never would have dreamed. That's what's going on. That's what she's feeling. This whole experience reminds us that God reveals his faithfulness in these verses for two reasons, church. First, because trust in God when we see that he always does what he says he will do. He fulfills his word to us. He completes his work in us. Trust in that is the wellspring of our obedience. What do I mean by that? When we perceive God's trustworthiness, we are compelled to trust him and when we trust him, we'll obey him. Okay, in fact, we, we demonstrate our trust in him through our obedience. And that's exactly what Abraham does in verses three and four, right? So he names the boy Isaac. God told him to do that. And then he circumcises him when he's eight days old. God told him to do that too. So God reveals his faithfulness as I had said, as I had spoken, because he wants to fuel Abraham's obedience. But this is the main point here, okay? That's not the only thing God is after in their life. God is not after mere obedience in your life. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. That there's something else, something more, something God is seeking and chasing and producing and inviting and holding out to you that goes beyond mere obedience. What's this, friend? God Almighty is seeking your joy. 
God wants you to laugh. He wants you to laugh. He wants you to experience and enjoy the same gladness in the perfection of his sovereign power that God himself enjoys. Okay? And that is the entire reason why Jesus came to earth, by the way. Okay? What did, what did the angels say to the shepherds? Luke 2.10. On the night Jesus was born, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. Or, or what, did, what did Jesus himself point to as the ultimate goal of his ministry on the earth? All that he was teaching and doing in his years here, John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, here's the question. How does God do that? How does God do that? I mean, maybe some of you are sitting here and you're, and you're thinking, are, are you on another planet, Williams? Because like God's joy in me, my joy full of That's not the Christianity I know. Well, here's how the Lord does that, friend. He works an even greater miracle in you than the one he worked in Sarah's body. He takes your heart that is cold and dead toward the things of God that, that views the Lord as at best an object of religious curiosity and at worst a killjoy who says no to anything that would be fun and he makes your dead heart alive. He opens your eyes as it were, spiritual eyes, to, to help you to see the greatness of his love for you in Jesus and, and the salvation that he's won for you through his life and death and resurrection. And then he grants you the gift of faith, exercising his power in your life by enabling sinful, weak human beings like you and me to turn away from our sin and trust Jesus as our savior. And to keep doing that over and over and, and over again until we get to see the Lord face to face and our joy is full for all eternity. That's how God does that. And that is far more of a miracle than the birth of Isaac. Far more of a miracle. When God does that in you and me, it is intended to produce joy. 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen him, I haven't seen him yet, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I wonder, friend, how many times have you come in here and heard someone on this stage say, Jesus Christ has saved us. And if you're honest, your immediate reaction is, I know, tell me something new. Tell me something exciting. Put, put some heart into it, preacher. Make me want to come back. Give me joy. I'm not joyful. Say something that'll, that'll send me out of here with, with a kick in my step. 
Friend, when I speak of joy, I am not talking about a glib, happy-go-lucky, everything's fine attitude toward life. I am talking about an abiding contentment that I have all I need through Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's what I'm talking about. And that is not something that anything in this world can ever take away from you, Christian. That's joy. That's joy. Our joy as Christians doesn't ultimately come from our possessions, our relationships, or our physical health, okay? Our joy as Christians comes from this, the salvation Jesus has won for us, the salvation Jesus is working in us, and the salvation that is waiting for us on the final day. Past, present, future. Joy in Jesus. But there is something that I think robs us of that joy. Here's where we're circling back to Genesis 21. We conclude that God might be trustworthy in general. God might be doing amazing, joyful, glad, happy things for Christians in general, but not for me. I'm too weak. I'm too messed up. I don't don't have what it takes to do this whole Christian thing. And therefore, I don't have all that joy. If you've ever thought that, I want you to listen to me very carefully right now. The whole point of Isaac's birth is that the Lord keeps his word to us in a way that upholds his sovereign power, not ours. Okay, I'll say that again. The whole point of Isaac's birth is that the Lord keeps his word to us in a way that upholds his sovereign power, not ours. So the problem isn't that we're too weak. You're weaker than you realize. (laughs) Okay, the problem is that we arrogantly assume that God's power is no match for our weakness. That's the problem. We, and we need to repent of that because when we do that, we are, we're enthroning ourselves and our weakness by concluding that, that this weakness we bring to the table is somehow the grand exception to God's power to save and God's power to work through us and fulfill his promises in our life. You are weak by design. I, I'm so thankful for the pastor elders God has put around me at our retreat a couple weeks ago. I just said to them, guys, weakness in my life is so discouraging to me. And I feel like I'm killing myself trying to improve my way out of it. And they just looked at me like, you're an idiot. <laughs> As only a faithful brother can do. And, and I think it was Josh who said to me, Matthew, the, the cracks, the weaknesses in your life, God is not remotely interested in working them out of you. Why not? Because those are the very things that he needs in order to display his sovereign power in your life. You take weakness out, you don't experience God's sovereign power. And if you don't experience God's sovereign power, God doesn't get the glory. Remember that, friend. We're weak by design, just like Abraham and Sarah were weak by design. And those very areas of your life where you feel most weak right now are the areas where God wants to exercise his sovereign power. And and not just so that you can finally get with the program and obey, okay, but so that you can be full of joy and laugh as you see God do what only God can do. Think of it this way, okay? Why is God supremely worthy of your trust? Remember, that's the question. 
The first answer is because he keeps his word in a way that displays his sovereign power. His power, okay? Point number two. The rest of these are shorter. Here's the second reason God's worthy of our trust. Because the Lord keeps his word in a way that upholds his perfect wisdom. So, if verses one to seven speak to our tendency to question God's power, verses eight to 13 speak to our tendency to question his wisdom. Different things can lead us to not trust God, right? One of them is questioning his power. Another one is questioning his wisdom. So it doesn't take long for Abraham to find himself in exactly that spot. What do I mean? Well, quick background, okay? In the ancient Near East, children were typically weaned between the ages of two and three. And that was a really exciting moment for the simple reason that infant mortality was unbelievably high in those days. Incredibly high. And so if a child arrived two or three years old, that was worth celebrating. And so Isaac finds himself weaned and Abraham makes a great feast. And Ishmael his son by Hagar, who's around 15, 14 at this time, he chooses the occasion to mock his stepbrother Isaac. So look at verse nine. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. That is not the laughter of joy. It's not innocent banter. Okay, that's, that's the laughter of scorn. That's the laughter of derision. It's the same verb form of, the, of laugh that we find back in Genesis 19 where Lot's sons-in-laws laughed when he said judgment was coming. It's mockery. It's scorn. It's, it's disdain. We, we don't know exactly what Ishmael said or what he did. All we know is that Sarah, Isaac's mom, perceived the enmity between the boys and she was incensed, to put it mildly. Because look at verse 10. She can't even use Hagar's name or Ishmael's name. Did you catch that? So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. I mean, the, 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 the anger she felt toward Hagar back in chapter 16 is, is now just spilling over toward Hagar's son Ishmael. And needless to say, Abraham is not happy about it. Why not? Because to Sarah, Ishmael is the son of this slave woman. You know what Ishmael is to Abraham? Look at verse 11. His son. Say what, Sarah? He loves the boy. He loves the boy and recoils at the thought of of casting him out. And, and I can just imagine, this is one of those points where we need to slow down and reading God's word and think about what was Abraham feeling in this moment? I mean, Genesis says he's very displeased. I would think so. Why? What, what's behind that? Well, I imagine anger at Sarah's harshness. 
Disappointment over, over Ishmael's mockery. Sadness mixed with guilt, knowing he was ultimately responsible for, for bringing this sorrow on himself and his family. And, and then you've got confusion and anxiety kind of swirled up in there, wondering how is this all going to turn out in the end? Have, have you ever been in a situation where other people's sin and your own sin all mixed up like pancake batter has left you feeling confused and angry. Ever been there? I, I don't understand what's happening right now, Lord. What, what, what it, where is all this going? I hate this whole mess. What in the world are you doing right now? Because to me right now, it looks like you're not doing anything remotely good. And that was the moment, friends, that God chose to break into Abraham's life with a word of assurance, a word of, of hope, a word, listen, that didn't tell Abraham everything he wanted to know, but told him enough that he could know God was in control. God was in control, and God was directing the entire situation according to the perfection of God's wisdom. Look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Motives aside, sin aside, your own sin aside, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, what's going on there? What's, it, what's God's way of saying, Abraham, you may feel like Sarah is calling the shots. Abraham, you may feel like, like your sin is calling the shots, but Abraham, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Though you can't see it, I'm at work. You can't see it, Abraham. But don't be afraid. I'm at work. Why? Because I'm using all the family drama, all the angst, all the bitterness, all the resentment, all the hard feelings, all the conflict and stress to bring my perfect plan to pass, Abraham. It might look foolish to you, buddy. It might seem downright cruel. I know it hurts terribly. But Abraham, trust me, my son. Trust me. I know things and see things, and I am orchestrating things in ways that you couldn't understand, even if I tried to explain them to you. So here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. Isaac must be your heir. And you need to send Ishmael away. Don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of him for your sake. But Isaac must be your heir. The Apostle Paul helps us understand why this is so important. Galatians 4, 21 Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. 
But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Why? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I could preach a whole another sermon on that. But suffice it to say, Paul recognizes that these two kids, okay, Isaac, Ishmael, they have to be understood allegorically. All right, let's go high school English on that, okay? What's an allegory? An allegory is a story that's teaching us other truths. I'm sure all you English teachers are cringing. That's a terrible definition. But you get the idea, okay? There's, there's something going on here that we need to learn that has more to do with just Ishmael or Isaac. That's the idea. So Ishmael represents our attempts to bring God's salvation to pass through human effort and activity. Right? Because that's what Abraham did. I am tired of waiting for God to do what he said he will do. You know what? I'm going to get on with Hagar. And we're going to have a child. And that'll solve my problems. Human effort. What Abraham did to conceive Ishmael is comparable to what we're doing whenever we try to earn God's love and acceptance through our obedience. And thus, Ishmael represents the fruit of salvation by works of the law. Okay? In contrast, Isaac represents salvation by faith, by trust, by waiting for God. So, so Abraham and Sarah conceived Isaac, right? It was a very human activity, but they didn't do it in their own strength, through their own work. They were, they were helpless. They were powerless. They received Isaac as a gift from God. They made, Hagar and Abraham made Ishmael. They received Isaac. They worked and worked to produce Ishmael. Try to, I'm, I'm going to bring God's saving purposes to the past. We can do this. They waited for Isaac. And that's the reason God chose to fulfill his promise through Isaac, okay? Because he wasn't going to allow Abraham to take any credit for bringing his plan to pass. He's jealous for his glory. And, and by choosing Isaac over Ishmael, though he cared for Ishmael, God protected his glory and he, he established and advanced his saving plan as a gift of divine grace, not the reward of human effort. That's what's going on. And you and I, friends, as we sang in that song, Grace Alone this morning, we should praise God for that, right? We should praise God that we are not saved through works of the law, but through faith in Christ, we should praise God for that. that. That's back to why do we have joy? Because of that. We receive salvation as a gift. And so in a sense, think of it this way. Each part of Genesis 21 
takes on a different form of unbelief that would lead us away from trusting God. Okay? When unbelief says, you can't trust God, human weakness will stop him from fulfilling his promises. Genesis 21 says, you can always trust God because he keeps his word in a way that displays his sovereign power. That was point one, okay? But unbelief doesn't stop there, right? When unbelief also says, you can't trust God, why not? Because what he's doing right now doesn't make any sense. All this stress, all this drama, you're angry at your wife, she's angry at him, everybody's angry at each other. It makes no sense. I can't trust you. Genesis 21 says, you can always trust God because he keeps his word in a way that upholds his perfect wisdom. But there's a third temptation, friends, and I'll end with this one. A third way that we are prone to be led away from trusting God, and that's this. It's the pain that seems to scream, God has forgotten. If it's not questioning his power or questioning his wisdom, at some point you will find yourself tempted to question his love for you. Has he forgotten me? But there is something Genesis 21 says to that too. It says that you can always trust God, point three, because the Lord keeps his word in a way that proves his loving compassion. He doesn't just keep his word in a way that displays his sovereign power or that upholds his perfect wisdom. He also keeps his word in a way that proves his loving compassion. How, where, where do we see this? Well, well, despite Ishmael's mockery of Isaac, the Lord was merciful to him. Remember, he's the one who kind of started this whole thing, but the Lord was merciful to him and his mom, but he didn't intervene right away. Look at verse 16. So what do we have going on here? What what is this sovereign, all-wise God allowing to take place? Hagar and her son are physically dying of thirst. And as a parent, I was thinking this week about what I would feel if if I was lost in the wilderness with my son, and I watched him just starting to stagger, this may not be smart. <laughs> and his lips are parched, and his eyes are glazed over, and he's, he's beginning to weave like dehydrated people do, and then I put my hand on his forehead, and his, his body temperature's dropping, and he just can't keep going, and so I grab him, and I just kind of ease him down under a bush. Trusting who? You're kidding me. And so she walked away from him. Verse 16, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite to him, she lifted up her parched voice and wept. I wonder if you've been there, friend. I wonder if you've been in a situation where it feels like God himself 
is being cruel to you. Where, where the circumstances of your life are, are urging you, begging you, screaming at you with, with, with all their terrifying power to conclude, God has forgotten me. No one's listening. No one cares. I am completely helpless. I'm utterly alone. And if you felt that, I want you to look with me at verse 17 very carefully. Because there's a surprising response from God here. And God heard the voice of the boy. Say, what? Did, did I get that right? Hagar's weeping. Why did God hear the voice of the boy? Why doesn't it say, and God heard Hagar's voice? Well, friend, I think it's because the Lord wants to remind you and me that he is acting here in keeping with his word of promise. Because back in verse 13, what did he tell Abraham? What, what did he promise Abraham? Abraham, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Okay, in other words, Ishmael too was the recipient of a promise. And thus, God could be trusted to pour out his loving compassion on Ishmael. That's what the Lord's saying. So, so friend, if you're in Christ, then know this. Hear this, okay? The Lord's loving compassion toward you is no different. It's no different, okay? It's not, it's not random. It's not spontaneous. It's, it's not here one minute, gone the next minute. Oh, wait, I think someone's crying somewhere. Oh, compassion coming your way. It's, it's not like that, okay? It's steadfast, reliable, because God has promised to lavish compassion on you. Isaiah 54 Verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you, Christian. And if you're thinking, okay, Matthew, I'll give you 90 seconds to help me see what that's supposed to look like. Game on but I'm going to need about two minutes. Notice how the Lord expresses his loving compassion. Look at verse 17. First, he hears. Okay, I won't belabor this point, but he hears the voice of the boy, and it's not a passive hearing. It's not a in one ear, out the other kind of hearing, okay? In fact, in the Bible, whenever we're told that God hears, whenever you see God heard, God hears, this is what you need to think. That is a hearing with an intention to act. It's not passive, oh yeah, I noticed that was on the infomercial. No, it's hearing with an intention to act. Psalm 10, verse 17. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. What's that mean? You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Friend, if you're feeling like God has forgotten me, know this. God is keeping his word to you right now in a way that upholds his loving compassion. First, by reminding you, I hear. Second, God hears us in the midst of our trouble. 
Okay? Where do I get that? What did the angel say to Hagar? God has heard the voice of the boy. Notice this, friend. Where he is. Where he is. He didn't say, I am waiting for you two to exercise a modicum of faith and get back on the path, part slip aside, and obey me. Come on, people. No. Where he is, he heard. Don't, don't miss that. It's in, the, it's in the midst of your darkest depression. It's in the midst of your deepest trouble. That's when the God who hears, hears you. Third, because God hears, we have better reasons for faith than fear. Think about that. Because God hears, which is always hearing with an intention to act, we have better reasons for faith than fear. That's the point of the angel's question. What troubles you, Hagar? I mean, when I first read that, I thought, uh, hello, I can give an idea, you know? What are you doing? Are you, are you making fun of her? No. What's he doing? He's acknowledging her trouble, and he's inviting her to consider her trouble in light of the loving compassion of God. Acknowledging her trouble, but inviting her to consider it in light of the loving compassion of God. In other words, for you math people out there, he's reminding Hagar, reminding us, that trouble plus a God who hears always equals better reasons for faith and fear. Trouble plus a God who hears always equals better reasons for faith than fear. And having having addressed her fear and strengthened her faith in the God who hears, what does he then say to her? Hagar, you need to obey. Faith is the wellspring of obedience. Verse 19, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. What's what's the point of this, friend? This kind of loving compassion. The point is, so often, we simply come to God wanting him to take away the pain of our life and just let us get on with doing whatever we want to do. Right? Lord, at some point, I'm so tired of asking you, could you please fix my problems and let me get on with my life? I mean, all I want to do is have joy. I've been there. All I want is not one more problem in the church, ever. God's after something better, friends. He's after something better in you than just taking away the pain. What's that? He wants to strengthen your faith by reminding you that he hears He wants to teach you to obey by commanding you to express your faith through simple acts of obedience. And then he wants to empower your obedience by giving you all the provision and all the supply that you possibly need to do what he's called you to do. That's what he's after. And in Hagar's case, that provision came in the form of another miracle. Look at verse 19. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. (laughs) Where was the well before? It was there. It was right there. But her grief and sorrow blinded her. Blinded her. So what did the Lord do? Come on, Hagar, quit crying. There's a well over there. No, 
I hear you. I'm going to help you. I need you to trust me and get up and follow me because you trust me. And guess what, daughter? You see that? That's water. God is in the business of enabling through his provision all the obedience he requires. That's the point. And the Lord hasn't changed his approach, friends. He he is committed to expressing his loving compassion toward you in the same way. And sometimes he withholds the water that we long for far longer than we would prefer, right? But this we know. All to whom God has made a promise of salvation will ultimately be satisfied. Revelation 7.15 Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. That's God's promise to you, Christian. One, One day your thirst will be completely satisfied. And so what do we do? We wait in hope, confident that the Lord will fulfill his word to us. He will keep his promises. He will do all he said he will do in a way that does what? Displays his sovereign power, upholds his perfect wisdom, and proves his loving compassion. Let's pray and thank him for that. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that we can always trust you. Always trust you. You know what is best, you're wise. You want what is best, you're loving. You have all the power to bring it about. You are sovereign. And we thank you this morning for not just telling us to trust you, but giving us, laying before us, confronting our feeble, unbelieving eyes with solid, sturdy reasons to trust you. Lord Jesus, brand them on our hearts, I pray. That we would be men and women in every situation who never cease to say, Lord, I feel weak. Lord, I don't understand. God, I feel like you have forgotten me, but I will trust the Lord. I will trust you. I will not trust you because I feel strong. I will not trust you because I understand. I will not trust you because I see all that you're doing or even feel your love right now, but I will trust you because of your word of promise that you have been good for in Christ Jesus, my Savior. Work that, I pray. We need your help. Amen.